Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. On today's episode, we're talking about a tiny little pea-sized gland that regulates more functions in our body than you might think possible. And here with me today, to help me understand this remarkable thing called the pituitary gland, is Dr. Stan Vanum. He is the chief of endocrinology at St. Joseph's Healthcare London and chair of the Department of Endocrinology and Metabolism at Western University. Dr. Vanum, welcome, sir. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and talk about a gland that goes to my heart, pituitary gland. <laughs> so I, I read that it is often called the master gland of the human body, and I was just looking at a list of some of the things it does. It, it's a, the center of human sexuality and reproduction. It controls the life hormone, ACTH. It controls and regulates the thyroid gland. It regulates metabolism. It, it's linked to mood and behavior, to size, shape, and height. It does so much. It's kind of astonishing. Is it fair to compare it to, if I was to use a sort of a computer analogy, does it, is it sort of like the body's CPU, the central processing unit? Is, is it something like that, sir? I think it's somewhere like that, although maybe the brain would compete with that as well. But it's part of, it tries to integrate signals from the brain and then translate to all kinds of functions in the body. And I think one of the challenges we face as endocrinologists is that Patients do not always link this gland to all kinds of things throughout the body like you were describing, and that's why we need to be very active in asking about various symptoms related to the pituitary gland. Right. And so tell me again, so briefly, what does it look like and where is it located? So it's a very small gland, uh, sometimes described as the size of a pea or maybe the nail of your pinky. It's located behind the bridge of the nose, just in front of the ears, that's sort of the skull base, and it's protected very well. It has a bony area around it, also called the cella, where it is very well protected. And the fact that it's so well protected shows how important it is for the overall function of the, the human body. Wow. Can you live without a pituitary gland? You can live without a pituitary gland as long as you replace the most important hormones that are regulated by the glands. So if you have a pituitary gland that is no longer functioning and you don't replace the hormones, then you can get seriously ill or even die from that. So I, I did list some of the things it, it, it plays a part in, uh, but I'll, I'll leave it to you. Essentially, what are the most important things that the pituitary gland does? For us. Okay. So the pituitary gland, like you said, is a master gland that regulates production by other hormonal glands. 
first as a principle, if you have a gland, there's three things that can happen with a gland in disease. It can produce too much hormone, it can produce too little hormone, or it can grow and have mass effects as well. Um, so for the pituitary glands, if it grows, and it usually grows upwards, just above the pituitary gland is that the nerves that come from the eyes that go to the back of your brain to be able to see, they cross over just above the pituitary gland. And so if that gland enlarges, it can affect those nerves and actually cause visual field effects. So some patients are identified having a pituitary issue because of the characteristic typical visual field effects that they have. So that's one of the things that it can do. There are about six hormones that the pituitary gland produces. And for each of them, or almost each of them, there can be presentation of too much or too little. This is, you're alluding to hypopituitarism and hyperpituitarism? Yes, that that's some way it describes. So hypopituitarism means that there is insufficient function of the pituitary gland that produces too little hormones. Hyper means that it's overproduction. And sometimes you can even have a combination. For example, uh, quite a common overproduction is the overproduction of prolactin. Prolactin is a hormone that plays a role, particularly in, in women in nursing and breastfeeding as well. So when there is a growth of cells that produce prolactin, it can grow in size. And then because this pituitary gland is bony area, the other tissues can be compressed by that growing pituitary adenoma. And even though it's benign, it has effects that the other hormone levels may go low. So you can have a mixed situation where one hormone is high and the other ones are low. Wow. Like anything, I suppose, that this complicated and is important. As you're saying, there's so many things that can go wrong. Um, you've referred to a couple of them there. Can you talk about some of the main pituitary disorders, I know that there is, for instance, you can just develop a tumor, correct? And there's yeah. also, well, uh, there's something called Cushing's disease, I yeah. understand. So maybe it's it's helpful just from understanding that we go over each of the hormones, what happens if there's too much production, and then later can, we can talk about what happens if there's insufficiency, because otherwise it may be confusing. So one of the important hormones is ACTH which is a hormone that stimulates the adrenal glands to make the hormone cortisol. And cortisol is also known as the stress hormone. So a normal cortisol goes up in the morning and then goes down, but it also goes up in situations of stress, whether you have a surgery, whether you have a sickness, whether you have some major stressful events as well. But if there is consistent overproduction of ACTH and therefore consistent overproduction of cortisol, that starts to create negative effects, which is called Cushing syndrome. And it's a rare but classic syndrome in which patients develop weight gain, particularly in the abdominal area. They have muscle weakness. Um, they can have uh, bruises that happen without understanding the reason why, so without bumping into anything or so. It can also, internally, it increases your blood sugar, increases your blood pressure. So it can result in developing diabetes, high blood pressure, and it can affect your bones, creating osteoporosis. So there's a whole number of things that this hormone has that then affects what's called Cushing syndrome. And together, that combination of things is what points to Cushing syndrome. And that can often be pituitary, but can also be other reasons why it's produced too much. Wow. So there must be an incredible array of symptoms that a patient experiences when something goes amiss, right? I mean, is it? Yeah. What, what, what should people be on the lookout for? 
So weight gain that is particularly in the abdominal area, it's a diabetes and high blood pressure has happened over a short time and that not explained by sort of the general population. Bruises that happen, it's also profound muscle weakness and it can be some patients who first present actually with depression. So that can also be mental health system and that's one of the characteristics of the hormonal system is that they can also affect modes and initiative, etc. as well. So it can be a whole range of things, and it is the combination, the clustering of things that can make a clinician suspicion. Many patients, when they have weight gain, look up and see Cushing syndrome, and they say, I might have this. I must say, given all the other consequences of Cushing syndrome, I'm always happy if I can tell them you don't have Cushing syndrome because it has a lot more consequences. Does it affect one gender more than another or a particular age group more than another? No, it's slightly more in women, but uh, it is not not majorly more as well. And it, it also, there can be other reasons as well. Sometimes it's the primary adrenal gland issue, sometimes other rare things. So the this first step is to diagnose, is this Cushing syndrome? The second is, is it indeed the pituitary that's the cause, which is in about 80% of patients? And most of them are somewhere in the adult range. We occasionally see this in, in children. It's, it's quite rare, but it can stop growth as well. Um, but it's mostly in the age range between 20, 30, and 70s. But it, it can be a whole range, so across the lifespan. Right. And can you talk a little bit about um, this one-stop pituitary clinic at St. Joseph's Hospital? Yeah. So when patients are diagnosed with a pituitary mass, we have to sort out, is there a hormonal overproduction? Is there a hormone insufficiency? Is this something that causes vision defects? And also, if that's happening, is what's the way to treat that? Is that something we can treat medically, or do we need a neurosurgical opinion, neurosurgical consult as well? Before we started this one-stop clinic, patients would see a neurologist or a, a neurosurgeon otherwise who would do some part of the assessments. And we felt that was inconvenient for patients that would slow down the process because you would have various waiting times. So what we created is a one-stop pituitary clinic, which, like the name explains, is on one morning we get all the information we need to have decisions where to go forward. So on the one-stop appointments, patients will do a blood test at eight o'clock in the morning. They will do a visual field test that assesses their vision if it's affected by the pituitary growth or not. They will see an eye doctor specialized in eye and neurology, the combination of those, and they will see the endocrinologist. Most patients already have imaging done. If that has not been done, so a proper uh, MRI scan, because it's a dedicated MRI, which gives most of the information, then we have that as well, which means that from the morning they come until uh, early afternoon when we have all the information, we then have all what we need to decide which way to go forward. And the forward could be monitoring, could be treatment, could be surgery, could be medical treatment. But you need to first collect the information. That's the nature of the one-stop to put that one together. And many patients, especially when they come from further away, really like it's one visit rather than having to come back two or three times. Wow. And then, again, it's an array of symptoms, an array of problems. But what normally, what is the <laughs> what are some of the treatments that um, ensue? So it depends. So if there's a prolactin overproduction, which is about one in four patients who present with a pituitary, we call the pituitary adenoma, 
And patients sometimes hear tumor. I should just say that even they use the word tumor, they're typically benign and not malignant. And that's one of the things patients worry about. Um, but prolactinomas can mostly be treated about 95 patients with medications. So we can, even if there is a vision defect, we can give medications that shrink that tumor, that make that the vision recovers again. If there's other conditions, which is the overproduction of uh, ACTH and cortisol, Cushing syndrome we talked about, or if it's acromegaly, which is the overproduction of growth hormone, and that's patients who then develop changes in facial features, uh, enlargement of the nose, the ears, the lips, the hands, the feet. We ask about shoe size or ring size where that's changed. Those patients, usually the first treatment is uh, surgical and trying to remove that tumor. And the surgery is typically done by a combination of the ENT together with the neurosurgeon where the ENT creates access through the nose, then reaches the, the, the skull base area and then allows the neurosurgeon to get access to the pituitary area. And then those patients who have a tumor that does not produce any hormones, but that causes hormone deficiency, that all of those hormones are low, those will typically require surgery. And occasionally afterwards, we have to use radiation as well. And when you say surgery, again, possibly a dumb question. I mean, you don't ever replace the pituitary gland, do you? No, no, that, that's no. very fair. So ideally, a surgery would remove the pituitary abnormal tissue, but leave the normal tissue in place. Sometimes that is not sufficient normal tissue left so the patients already have hormone insufficiency. It will need to be a replacement. Sometimes the surgery, in order to be successful and prevents the negative outcomes of the overproduction, also removes the pituitary gland. And it gets done usually with, but it's, it's very soft tissue. It's not like a hard tissue. So it's sort of the surgeon tells me that they suck it away with, rather than that they actually cut around it. And you have to remember that the surgeon has to be very careful because right next to the pituitary gland are the two arteries that go to the brain and that provide the brain with, with blood. Cutting into an artery, of course, is something you absolutely want to avoid, which means that the surgery is sometimes limited to what's the excess you can get because you can't go around an artery with the instruments you have. You have to just stay in the certain area. So that means that sometimes after the surgery, there will be some residual tissue that we have to then follow or even uh, use radiation for. Doctor, can you tell me approximately what percentage of the tumors are malignant or cancerous? It's one to two percent, maybe. There is some suggestion that patients who produce gross hormone in too large amounts, so called acromegaly, that they have a bit more risk of any kind of, of tumors because you can see that growth hormone might be a stimulant for a tumor that's present somewhere. That's the reason why we screen patients with acromegaly for polyps in the colon, which is a sort of a precancerous lesion. There is also some suggestion that there is more cytoid cancer with that as well. With patients who make too much TSH, so the hormone that stimulates the cytoid glands, we typically see that there's overproduction of hormone so too much, but not necessarily cancer, but that's quite rare. So in my uh, 20 years here, I've maybe seen six patients who had a TSH-producing adenoma. And because we're a referral center for a region of about 2 million people, you can see that that's quite rare. So there are, within the pituitary disease, there are common ones, and there are ones that are very rare. It's a whole stretch along that. Doctor, does the, do the adenomas ever grow back? They can grow back, so that's two ways of looking at that. First is 
after someone has had pituitary adenoma surgery, we will usually do an MRI scan three to six months later to get a new lay of the land. Is there anything left or not? Because like I said, sometimes there is parts that are a bit tucked away behind the artery that couldn't be reached. So therefore, there is a residual left and that can grow. And that's something which we typically would do an MRI scan every year for the first three years and then maybe increase the interval. In somebody who's completely had removal of the adenoma and there's normal pituitary but nothing else left, we will still do some imaging, but if there's no sign of it coming back in the first five years, it's usually not coming back. So it depends on which scenario is as applicable to that patient. Wow. Is there any way that we can take care of our pituitary glands in like terms of diet or anything else that we can do to kind of prolong its health and operation? I wish there was, but there is not. Ah. But there are some other factors that play a role. For example, uh, traumatic brain injuries can sometimes also affect the pituitary gland. And whether it's a single by a motor vehicle accident, a car accident, or whether it's repetitive, uh, for example, in, in professional boxing or other high-level boxing, there can be damage that happens with multiple blows to the pituitary gland that it causes an issue. The other, which sometimes affects pituitary hormone f is functional, is the use of opioids that can also affect pituitary hormone level, particularly testosterone production in men as well that can go low. And that's so, again, so that the, the pituitary function is then affected by the use of these medications. So there can be things like that, trying to avoid, minimize traumatic brain injury, uh, minimize opioid use. Right. And, and again, just to go back a step, I mean, obviously the, most of the patients at the one-stop clinic have been seen and referred by a, a general practitioner. Is that correct? It could be a general practitioner. It could be a neurologist who did a CT scan of the heads for headaches and then find out something that's there and present as well. It could be because a patient had cataract surgery, but the vision didn't improve after the surgery that there's a realization that something in the tissue behind the eyes, the nerves that is not conducting well. So it is quite a range of areas where patients can be, be picked up and the, the realization is that it maybe there's something with the pituitary. Right. So many people come to the one-stop clinic, there's a vague understanding that something's wrong with pituitary, but perhaps specific diagnosis is lacking at the time? Yeah, so it, it might be that it's related. It might be that's what we call an incidentaloma, so it's found by coincidence with how particular symptoms. Other patients have very clear symptoms and are then being assessed and, and coming forward because of that. So there's the whole range from zero symptoms to symptoms that are totally clear that it's related to the pituitary from the moment you lay eyes on someone. Wow. And again, to sort of generalize, is the outlook generally positive for patients who have undergone some sort of treatment for problems? Yeah, I think it's, it's most patients we can treat quite well. Um, the hormones that the pituitary produces, we can replace most of them. We can never do it as well as a fully functioning body. This way we can get pretty close and we can then prescribe those medications, whether it's cortisol replacement, whether it's thyroid hormone replacement, whether it's testosterone replacement. So that's replacements we can do. With respect to the overproduction, most patients we can treat it well with surgery. About 60 to 70 will have success with the surgery alone. Others may need further treatments after that that we, we work on. So 
it requires a pituitary board, which we we have as a group. We have a pituitary board which discusses various patient presentations and cases where we bring in expertise from ophthalmology, from radiology, neurosurgery, uh, radiation oncology, to try to find the best course for patients where things are not as, as straightforward. What about looking ahead? Is there any new, are there any new developments or new research that you're excited about? Yeah, there is a, a research in various areas. We are involved in a project together with a group in Halifax where I've done a couple of projects together with respect to acromegaly, which is the overproduction of growth hormone. And one of the areas with respect to growth hormone is what has not as been well studied is the effect that it has on joints and looking at the negative effects on joint function, joint pain that patients may experience. And we actually, we, we just presented a study at the Endocrine Society, which is the largest global meeting for endocrine diseases, where we looked at patients who had pituitary surgery for acromegaly, so growth hormone overproduction, and patients who had surgery for those non-functioning adenomas. And it was clear that patients with acromegaly had way more joint problems, hip surgeries, knee surgeries, pain of the joints as well. So that's an area that requires more attention because that's something is, that's not reversible. Once bones get misformed or the effect of growth hormone, we cannot undo that. While if a patient has too much growth hormone that causes the blood sugar go up and get diabetes, if you normalize growth hormone, you can often control that better or normalize it. So there are various aspects that, that we're working on. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think is important to discuss? I think what we have not touched on is the hormone deficiency and okay. what is happening there. So the most critical hormones here are the cortisol and the thyroid hormone. Many people are aware of hypothyroidism, where the thyroid hormone is low, because that happens a lot when patients have no, no thyroid gland or no functioning thyroid glands. They know that in that situation, you can get weight gain, feel cold, get constipation, uh, feel tired as well. And that's probably fairly well recognized by the audience. Adrenal insufficiency, if you don't make the cortisol or you don't get the stimulation, is actually a condition that can be life-threatening because you need your cortisol, not for baseline, but particularly in stress situations, surgery, when you get sick with the flu or other times. So that's something which the replacement is critical. And I mean, I saw a patient this morning who had uh, lost the ability to produce cortisol and had lost 50 pounds just by being unwell and nausea and vomiting because of the lack of cortisol. So it is a critical hormone in your normal functionality. And like with most hormones, when they function well, you, you don't realize what they do. But as, when the function goes abnormal, then suddenly it becomes clear how important they are. Right. And, and just to put it in a broader context, perhaps, can, can you give me any sort of number of how many people, a percentage of people that are affected by pituitary disorders? So that is it's a very good question. There's two questions, if I may translate that. One sure. is how many patients have anything in the pituitary if you do imaging, but how many are affected and notice the effect of that? And where that's important is that if you take a run-of-the-mill adults on the streets and you do MRI scans, you will find some small pituitary adenoma in 20 to 30%. So it's, it's very common. Most of those, about 90%, do not ever have an awareness of that or have a pituitary hormone issue or a vision issue related to that. 
So it's a smaller group uh, of about 1% to 5% of that who actually notice symptoms. And that's where then the difficulty is if you have a pituitary adenoma that's smaller and you have symptoms, are they actually related or do they happen to be present at the same time? Because a patient thinks if there's something there, it must be the cause of it, which is a logical assumption, but that actually turns out that's not always the case. And many, particularly if it's smaller adenomas, they do not cause issues. If it's larger ones, a totally different story. And then the other part is to be aware of that most pituitary disease is these adenomas, but there can also be other seeds. People can have a bleed in there. They can have diseases that have spread through there. Sometimes it's metastasis from elsewhere, from tumors elsewhere. Sometimes it is systemic inflammation diseases that can affect the pituitary. So there can be a lot of other reasons why the pituitary function is affected. Those are more rare. Most common is pituitary tumors, but it's not the only ones. And that's part of the expertise we bring is the ability to integrate the information, say, is this an adenoma? Is this something else? How do we look at that further or not? And trying to find the underlying cause in order to have better ability to find the most appropriate treatment for patients. So can you describe some of the, the visual field symptoms that a person might experience? Yeah, so actually that's a very good question. And patients who have a pituitary-related visual field have a distinctive visual field where it's the outsides of the eyes, the temporal vision it's called, so the lateral sides, that's what's lost. So if you close one eye, it might be the part that is from the middle towards the right, or if you close the other eye, from the middle to the left. So patients will not always be aware of that because the part that's missing with one eye is covered by the other eye that still sees that. But I have had patients who became aware of missing those side spots because they were playing sports. So I had one person who played hockey and couldn't see the puck if it went to the right side of the field or played golf and couldn't see the golf ball when it went to the left side. And that was the first sign of a pituitary tumor. But sometimes patients may not see, for example, the sites next to a door and walk into the doorpost because that's part of what they don't see. But because it develops gradually, there's not always the awareness of that. And uh, that's, required. that's why we want to test in everyone to see what's actually the division situation. And also that we can follow over time if division changes because there's pituitary tumor growth that makes more the case, okay, now we have to do surgery in order to address that vision loss and hopefully regain the vision that was lost. Is there a link between hormonal changes in the pituitary gland and mental illness? So what you're asking about is really is the interplay between hormones and mental health issues. And that's always a challenge because it can go both ways. So you can have a adenoma that results in too much cortisol, cortisol overproduction that creates mental health disease. And we've had uh, over the last year, a young woman who had was admitted with a psychosis of psychiatry because there was too much cortisol production. On the other hand, any form of significant depression will go with increased cortisol production. So it's our job to figure out, is there overproduction of a hormone that causes mental health issues, in which case we want to normalize the hormone production, or is the hormone production a response to underlying mental health disease, where you need to treat the mental health disease and then assess that the hormone production gets normal. And you can see that that can be quite a tricky interplay where we need to collaborate with the psychiatrist and look at treatment and sometimes 
try to use medical treatment to bring levels down to normal and see does the mental health this issue disappear or not, or does it stay, and how does the patient respond to that? So it can go both ways, and it's, it's quite a tricky interplay of both mental health, mental function, physical function, and hormonal production. And are there any um, particularly online resources, Dr. Venom, that you, you recommend that people might go to? Yeah, there is some good resources. There is a pituitary society, which actually has a lot of good patient information. They also have a newsletter as well. So there's a North American society. Um, a number of the uh, well-known clinics have good information. So whether it's the Cleveland Clinic, whether it's the Mayo Clinic, they will have some good information as well. And there's also often some good videos about where is the pituitary gland and what does it do? Because one of the struggles that patients have is that even if they have sort of learned what the pituitary is, to then to explain to others around them what they have and what the pituitary is, that is a whole different layer. And that's the complexity that patients often feel. So having information of where to look at is also to share with the ones that are close to them as well is, is often very helpful. Well, thanks, Dr. Van Oom. That was incredible. Very good. Thank you, sir, for your time. It's my pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us. And join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London. For more resources and details about today's topic, visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy.